thankful this morning in Christ that things can be well with the soul and well with other people too in our lives. Thank you, Roman, for saying that verse this morning. I owe you a hamburger because I have been under threat that if somebody does not say it, that Joey has put me on the stand. So I appreciate you this morning. Every morning, but more so this morning. You know, when my son was coming out of uh, the nursery, he was going into big church, we called it back then, the adult part of it. And so as a dad, and i already been through that with my son Hudson, and there are usually surprises. So with Remington, I decided, we're going to go sit in the back of the auditorium just in case this experience isn't as pleasant as I hope it to be as a father. And as we sat in the back, everything was going well, and then the gentleman that was leading the song service said, let's all prepare our hearts and bow our heads as we meet Christ this morning, as we meet God. And everything quieted and all heads bowed, and all of a sudden I hear shouting out, where is he, Dad? Where's God? He said we can meet him and I want to meet him. And you could see shoulders start to shake as up in the rows. So I ask you this question. When you think of church, what do you most often think about? Is it a building that we meet in with the intention that we've come this morning to meet God? Is that how it works? And to worship him inside of this building? Or maybe we come to learn more about the Bible because we want to know what it teaches, but why? In other words, is it because the heart is yearning to know because it wants clarity? Because with that clarity, that heart has already decided to obey. It just needs to know what it is that God is wanting. John 7, 17, Christ makes a statement. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. In other words, there's there's an attitude, heart set, that comes with wanting to know the Scripture. Maybe we're here today because we want to hear a truth that will hopefully resolve a personal problem or that somebody else that we know will hear a truth that will help resolve a personal problem. Maybe it will fix us or it will fix them. Or maybe we just wanted to be inspired this morning, encouraged, built up, just get a little pump in our life because the week was bad and things just weren't what we wanted them to be. And can I make this statement that a church isn't just what we experience together on a Sunday or Wednesday night? It's much more than that. I'm going to say that a church is what we actually are as a group that's assembled here today. I'm going to say the church is a sphere in which the New Testament Christian is to minister and where all ministry goes in and out of and flows. So I want to look today in our last of our series on the church as a, (coughs) excuse me, the church as a ministry, the, the church in the fact that it's not just universal, but it is also something that is quite local. And then I want to define a church, because anything that's outside of the definition of a church that's doing ministry is actually not a church. 
It's something other than that. So I want to look first at, at the point, not that the church is a ministry, excuse me, I miss, I miss, look, it's a mystery. Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1. The church was a mystery, and when we say the word mystery, we're talking about not something that is a puzzle that's trying to be figured out. But it's a mystery in the sense that it's a truth that was hidden in other times and is just being proclaimed at that particular time. This is the new revelation. When we talked about dispensations beginning with new revelation, this is one of the new revelations for the dispensation of grace that you and I live in. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 1, Paul makes a statement. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship or the dispensation or the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made, and again, it's a truth that was hidden in times past, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And Paul's talking about what was hidden is now made known, that there is a promise that comes from Jesus Christ, that there's going to be one body, not Jew and Gentile anymore, one body. Look at verse 10. For this purpose, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and the authorities and the heavenly places, so the church is going to become central to holding and giving out and representing in life the revelation that God has given in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And here's where some of the problem becomes. It's a real truth, but sometimes it can get overemphasized one way or another that the church is both local and visible, and yet also it is invisible and universal. Both of these are described in the New Testament. So turn back to Ephesians 2, if you would. In verse 13. Paul's going to be talking about what we call the universal church, or, or the invisible church that is the body of Christ. Ephesians 2, 13 through 16 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And he's talking to the Gentiles in regard to the Jews. For he himself, Jesus Christ himself, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's talking about the walls in the temple that separated different people. There's the court of the Gentiles where only a Gentile coming to worship Jehovah could go. He was restricted from all other parts of the temple. And then there was the court of women, and the women were not to go any further than them, but the Gentiles couldn't go into even that court. And then there was a court for the Jewish men. 
And then finally, there was the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest could go there. Paul's talking about that wall, that wall that divided the Gentiles from the, excuse me, the Jews, and men from women. All walls, if you would, have been torn down. All distinctions in that regard have been torn down. Not only that, when he's forming everything into this one man, he says something else about the law. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. So the law of Moses now becomes obsolete, if you would, in this new thing that God is doing. Not that there is not benefit from it as the word of God, always there. But as a way of living, to come before God and for righteousness, no, no part of the New Testament Christian's thinking. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man or one new race, where there's no distinction between male and female, no distinction between Jew and Gentile, no distinction between economic differences or anything that separates people in this world today. There's just one new race, and it's called Christian. This would be the universal body, all that fall underneath this category. Look, if you would, that in verse 5, excuse me, chapter 5 and verse 23, as Paul uses this term church in more of a universal way. Ephesians 5 and verse 23. He says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he calls it his body, and is himself its savior. Again, he's not just talking about the Ephesian church. He's writing to the Ephesians. But the word church here is not, you can't put in there, that he, for the husband is the head of one wife, even as Christ is the head of the Ephesian church, although in reality he's the head of all churches. He's talking about something way, way more broad than just what's happening in Ephesus. And it's his body and is himself a savior. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Again, it's not just Ephesus. And he gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, and having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, that he might present the church. And he's not talking again about just the Ephesians. But all that are in this broad category that we call the body of Christ that he might present it to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And, and we get from this the understanding that this church of all believers it will distinguish when that begins are also the bride of Christ. So you've got the church, you've got the bride of Christ, you have the body of Christ, and those things are representing a broad category. All people who have come to Christ in the New Testament from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matthew 6.18 will say this. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church. And again, it's not a specific thing. It's the body. It's the bride. 
So we would say this then, the universal body of Christ is made up of all genuinely regenerated believers because they put their faith in what Christ did on the cross for their sins. The first example of this that we see is in Pentecost. Acts tells us that after Peter preaches, 300 people are added to what we might call a church or the church or the body of Christ. And it's going to become local. It's going to begin to manifest itself in a local way. Because there's some things that this broad universal church is not able to do because it's so broad and because it's so universal. That's where this visible church comes in or the local church comes in. I'll say that the local church is a local collection of people that makes the invisible or universal church visible. I mean, that's the whole point of us being here today. That we're taking something that is incredibly broad and we're bringing it to a particular location that we call Maranatha Baptist Church with the intention of making visible Jesus Christ, making visible the body of Christ in a particular location. Matthew 18, if you'll go there, Matthew 18, verse 15. Here's an example of something that just cannot be done with a, with a broad, universal church concept. It has to happen in a local setting. He says, if your brother sins against you, in verse 15... Go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two others along with you, and every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And the question is, what church is he talking to? It can't be this broad body of Christ that we call the bride of Christ It can't be that because how are you going to bring that before all those people? Because they're spread out all over the world as saved individuals in Jesus Christ. But you can bring it to a local body that represents or makes visible that broad body. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or an unsaved person and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, he's giving an authority to this local body to come to a decision on this thing that has been brought before him, and what they decide is a corporate body, not not just the leaders. Because the church is the whole corporate body. It comes binding on all those people comes something that God then approves of. So whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And if you're thinking it in those contexts, that all the decisions that the local church is making as a corporate body becomes binding on those in that body, you would think that we would be packed out on a business meeting. Why? Because you, you, you are speaking on behalf of God for the whole congregation. And, and God would want the whole body to be involved in that. 
So only the visible local body of a church can manifest the broad body that, that literally remains invisible, if you would, without the local church. So how do we define a local church? Because this will become important in a little bit. How do we find a local church? Define it. There, there's six components that want to mention. Some people have more, some have less, but, but probably this is kind of the core for me, and you, you can argue it if you'd like, because it is arguable. But there are some components that just have to be there. First, the church is a group or collection of saved people, separated and apart from the world. In other words, this word ecclesia, which, which we get our word church, its normal meaning is simply it's an assembly. And it doesn't refer to the people at the assembly, but the meeting or the gathering itself. But in the New Testament, it takes on a little bit fuller meaning, different meaning, where the people themselves become the ecclesia. Whether they are gathered or not, they're still the church, wherever they may be. Acts 2.47 says this about the people that are in this church or people who are saved. It says, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved or those who were putting their trust in Jesus Christ for their Savior. And that's who was being added to the church there in Jerusalem. So we would say a, a local church is to be made up of saved individuals. But it's interesting one difference between this and the universal church. Only those who are saved would be part of the universal church. But we know it's possible for tares to be in a local church. We know it's possible for people to adhere themselves to a local church and by all outward design manifest the characteristics of being saved. And they could actually become a member of a church because nobody knows any different from their life and not really ever place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior but it's supposed to be made up of those that have done that. The church is also a collection of people that are unified and they adhere to the apostles' doctrine. There's something that we believe. So it's not a collection of people that are gathering to discuss truth or to bait truth or to find or discover truth. They've already come to believe that there's only one absolute truth. That's the doctrines that are taught in the New Testament and recorded from us in Christ and recorded for us as the apostles communicated that too. We're, we're trusting that that is the very word of God. And it's the revelation that really guides and directs us as a church in this dispensation we live in. Acts 2.42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, and to breaking of bread and with prayers. And we would say because of this, the primary responsibility of a local church is to proclaim this truth. That, that's what's primary. That's what's absolutely essential. This truth needs to get out. And the church is going to be responsible for that. Corporately. And then you and I individually. We might say this too. 
The church is a collection of people that practice ordinances and communion. We're going to be doing that this morning. Any type of ministry that does not have the authority to do this is not a church. It's just a ministry that's going on outside of a church. But Christ gave communion and he gave baptism in that rite as something that the church is supposed to be held responsible for. Both are outwardly symbolic of our union with Christ, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And neither can be rightly practiced first without being saved or regenerated, baptized by the Holy Spirit, if you would, into the body of Christ. All this happens at the point of salvation. So again, these two ordinances are given to the church to uphold and to keep. The next one, the church is a collection of people that strive to fulfill the Great Commission. This, this is our marching orders. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always till the end of the earth. And it's interesting as we're going about this world, in other words, going is not the primary verb. So sometimes we look at it as the primary and we use it to say, okay, now that you're saved, you need to go. And you need to go into Clarkston and you need to go to the surrounding Clarkston. You need to go into another country, but go. And sometimes it's a great missionary push, but if the main verb was to go and every person had to go into another country, what would happen when people get saved in another country? Well, they're going to need to go, <laughs> but their country needs them. They just got saved. Yeah, but it says go, so you've got to find another country. And we're just going to be switching countries all the time. That's not what was in mind. Although we have a mandate to reach the world, so some people are going to go. The main verb is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. And it's as we are going about this world. Wherever you find yourself, the main occupation of our thought in life is to make disciples of Jesus Christ in all of those settings and in all of those locations that we find ourselves. This idea of baptizing to identify them with Christ publicly and then training to observe, again, is not just a teaching thing. The training to deserve is actually a training to obey. That there comes a teaching of the doctrine, but there also comes an encouragement to put it into practice. Because the two have to go hand in hand. So we're not just simply to respond in belief to the gospel. We're supposed to surrender in a commitment to the gospel, a commitment to the person of the gospel, Jesus Christ. So here's a question. Do you think Christ would expect anything different from us as New Testament Christians than he expected from Peter, James, John when he said, follow me? And I'm going to argue, no. It's the same commitment level. It's the same understanding. And I think maybe sometimes in our American Christian culture, we don't understand fully what it meant to become a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
The church is also a collection of people that are organized and administrated by scriptural offices. We, we, we call them pastors and deacons. So the church is not just an organization. We know it's an organism. It's a living thing. But it has an organization to it, and it's prescribed by, Bible, by the Bible. Philippians 1.1 says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints of Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and with the deacons. We won't go into the roles of what they are, but for our purposes, just want to understand this is part of the characteristic of a church. Those things have to be there. And lastly, the church is a collection of people that covenant to meet at regularly stated times. Acts 2.46, we find out it appeared that they were meeting daily at the temple because that's what they were trying to do. We learn in Revelation 1.10, as John says this, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. We know the early church historically met on Sunday, which was the day that the Lord rose from the dead. It was the Lord's day, they called it. Hebrews 10.24 says that Christians are not to forsake the gathering of themselves together. And we understand in their setting, there was real persecution going on. And some of them out of fear were shrinking back, back from the gathering lest they end up in persecution. And Paul's admonishing them, don't forsake this. It's necessary characteristic of the church. But here's the thing, the New Testament, days and times of when we meet, they're not specified. We, out of tradition, are still meeting on a Sunday. But the days and times aren't specified, and each local church would have the opportunity to determine what days that they want to meet, what days would be best for them in the situations they find themselves in. But the reality is we must meet. We must gather. We must make the invisible body of Christ visible as we do so. So I'm going to say with all this in mind, the church becomes central to the dispensation of grace. And in every dispensation, God has some ruling party. God himself is the one who is in charge, but he often has an institution or an individual or individuals ruling, if you would, on his behalf that he's given that responsibility. And in the New Testament, it's not the leadership of a local church. It's the church itself. It's the whole body church. Everybody that's involved. So in the age of innocence or the dispensation of innocence, Adam was to guard the, the garden. And God walked with man and gave him revelation. When we look at the dispensation of conscience, God's spirit was at rule and the conscience internally of the individual. After the flood, he established with Noah human government and human government was given responsibility to carry out the righteousness of God. So now that man, can sh whoever sheds man blood, man's blood, by man can his blood be shed. This can be rightly done now as God established government. We read in Romans 13, that government or the government we have today still has this mandate. 
and we are so far from it. But our government still has the mandate before God to carry out God's righteousness. Then in the dispensation of promise, God pulled out Abraham, if you remember. And Abraham became the patriarch of a people. His descendants that God gave a promise to, and that was passed on to Isaac and to Jacob. And they were to keep those people before them or keep them aware of what God's promises were. And then came the law. It was a covenant. It was written down. And all people could read this covenant. But God gave judges, and he gave prophets, and he later gave kings, and their responsibility was to uphold the covenant and to direct and to guide the people to do so too. In the age of grace, the church becomes the one that has that functioning role. It's to be the light of the world and the mediator of God's rule, if you would, as the pillar and the ground of the church that it keeps and that it guards and that it proclaims. In fact, 1 Timothy 3, 14 through 15 says this, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God or in the family of God. How do we behave and what are the rules of behavior? And then he goes on to describe the church like this, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of the truth. One commentator sums that phrase up like this because there's lots of different views. The meaning then is that the stability of the truth on earth is dependent on the church. It's given to you and me and everyone sitting in this room today. It is owing to the fact that the church is itself founded on a rock that the gates of hell cannot prevail against, that no storms of persecution can overthrow it, that the truth is preserved from age to age because the church is promised to be preserved. Other systems of religion are swept away. Other opinions change. Other forms of doctrine vanish. But the knowledge of the great system of redemption is preserved on earth, unshaken, because the church is preserved and because its foundations cannot be moved. That's what God's holding us responsible for today as a church, as a visible local body of this greater, broad, heavenly body of saved individuals all throughout this New Testament time. So what are some of the applications? Well, one was this, as we already looked at, only the visible church can correct, bring, bring back to and restore a sinning member and also have what they decide as being binding not only on that member but on the church body itself because God gives the church that place. But again, it's the whole body. It's not just leaders making those decisions. It's the whole body coming together, spirit-filled individuals. So ultimately, we would say the authority of the local church rests in the corporate body. It's the ultimate authority. I can't just come to a church and say, hey, you're a church. I just happen to be a pastor. Therefore, I'm going to take your church and pastor it. 
That is given to a pastor by who? The local church congregation, because that's where the final authority stands, and that church can take that away, too. Also, every Christian is to place themselves underneath the accountability of a local church. That's one of, that's one of it. That's why we practice what's called a formal membership here. You don't become a member just because you tend regularly. And the purpose of this is two-way in nature. The one who's coming for membership is saying, I see from Scripture the need to adhere myself to a church. And I see the responsibility of putting myself underneath of its accountability. On the other hand, it is the church's responsibility, the best we know. And we don't know all the way down into the heart all the time. But the best we know by their profession of faith and by the life that they're living, the one coming is a genuinely saved individual. And the church is acknowledging that the best that we can at the point of membership. Because it's part of our responsibility as a church. Also, if a, if a church or ministry, and here's where it comes more, more practical even, does not adhere to the doctrine of the apostles, doesn't have any authority to, to give the, the communion or to baptize, and all these other characteristics we talked about as a local church, then it can't operate like a, a local church. It's interesting, this is way back in 1993, the World Council of Churches. The general secretary made this statement. They said that we all have spirit mothers who avenge us and the spirits of the dead surround us. They're in the rustling of trees. They're in the groaning woods. They're in the crying grass. They're in the moaning rocks. And this particular individual is in charge of the World Council of Churches. And my question is, can any church that's holding this doctrine, by the definition of what the Bible's saying a church is, can it actually be counted as a church? And the answer would be no, because they're not adhering to the doctrine of the apostles and other things. In fact, they had one other special speaker there. And they made this, this statement as they defined salvation. Salvation is bringing out what is within you. And then they quoted the Gnostic Gospels to verify their point. John fought Gnostics. All through the New Testament, the Gnostic thought process is being fought as a false doctrine but now the World Council of Churches, way back in 1993, is saying they're a church and they're in our membership. And the reality is they can't be. And lastly, all ministry should flow out and under the authority of a local church in this dispensation just because it's God's plan. I mean, that, that's the crux of it. And our Christian culture has things that are ministries, but they aren't churches. In other words, they're ministries that come alongside of a church. They're called parachurch ministries. 
And it's not that they're doing bad things. And I'm not here to put all that down. I'm here to raise the church up in understanding. But the idea of the parachurch ministry is to come alongside of the church in a particular area to benefit the church. But at the same time, it can't function on its own. It needs the church, and it needs people in the church, and it needs resources in the church for it to function. Let me give you an example of what might happen. I'm going to use something that I don't think anybody is doing anywhere out there in the whole world, but I might be wrong, so I don't think anybody thinks I'm picking on them. But let's say somebody in our church is a basket weaver. No, No basket weavers, correct? Okay. And they get concerned when they're at conferences and shows and organizations for basket weavers because they're running into a lot of unsaved basket weavers. So they become burdened in reaching basket weavers. Can they do that? I hope they do while they're weaving baskets with them because that's what the gospel's asking them to do. But it goes beyond simply that. Now they're wanting to start a basket weaving ministry. They're asking people from this church and from that church to help buy equipment and help put together their basket weaving ministry so they can reach people for Jesus Christ. But what is the primary purpose of the church? In other words, eventually they may come to the church itself that they're a member of and say, hey, will you come alongside of me and help me with my basket weaving ministry? And I would suspect that Pastor Joey would say, no. With all the kindness and generosity that oozes from Joey's Joey's heart and mind. Why couldn't he do that? I mean, there's unsaved basket weavers. Because the responsibility of the church is primarily the proclamation of the gospel, and it can get distracted in all sorts of side things going on to where the purpose and the ministry of the church becomes hindered and crippled to some extent. John MacArthur was asked, what caused his church to grow. And it was an interesting statement that he made because there's all sorts of things one could probably say. And he said the most effective means of our church growth was the individual communication of the gospel by its members wherever they went. And what he was meaning was we, we had some grand things that we did at times. But the reality is, is the most effective way to to grow, if you would, not only the universal body of Christ, because anybody who gets saved is added to that, is if the church was about the spread of the gospel as they go about their daily life, because you don't need to have a basket weaver ministry. Because this person in the church would be feeling the responsibility to reach the basket weavers while they basket weaved with them. And each member of the church is going to come in in contact with dentists and doctors and grocery store workers and people in all different walks of life. 
And there won't need to be any special ministry created just to reach that special group of people. Because just by nature of living life, if the church itself was very vivid and very, when I say vocal, I don't mean that in an in, in a odd or obnoxious way. But it was spreading the gospel. You would be seeing people from all walks of life and in all situations of life coming to know Christ. But it can't happen if the gospel's not spread. The gospel has to be spread. So I'm going to make this statement as we close, and and it could probably be somewhat controversial. Any Christian ministry outside of the local church could disappear tomorrow, and God's plan would continue forward unhindered because the church is the sphere in which the New Testament Christian is to minister in which God has asked to take his gospel. I leave that there to think for a while. In other words, God has promised one thing, and that was the local church. He's given them the responsibility to spread the gospel. And again, I'm not trying to diminish any other thing. I'm trying to raise up if I could where the responsibility of the individual and the priority of the individual is in this dispensation of grace. And it's inside of the ministry of the local church that they adhere themselves to. That's what becomes primary. That's what becomes front and center. And I still think it's God's plan to reach his world through the churches in that way. So let's close in a word of prayer as we take time and have opportunity as a local church to share communion together because of what Christ has done on the cross for us. Lord God, you are an amazing and incredible God. And sometimes when we evaluate your plan and the different situations that we find ourselves in, it it doesn't look like it's going to work so well. And it looks like it's going to need some help and some help in a lot of different ways. And yet, dear God, we know that you work through your word. Your spirit becomes effective through the obedience to your word. So we're asking, dear God, you'd help us as a church body to understand most clearly what it is you're requiring of us. Help us, dear God, that we would have inside our hearts a desire and a yearning to just make that a part of our life, dear God, in a way that's very vivid and very real so that you may be communicated not only with our mouths but with our lives and our different interactions with each other to the community around us that you indeed are God, that they might get a taste of what it is to be underneath the leadership of Jesus Christ that you might bind us together in unity around your word. And we would give you all praise and all glory. And Lord, we would also pray that we might see the results of that as we go out into our community. And Lord, as you bring people to yourself through the giving of your gospel 
And we would give you praise and give you glory.